Hello, Lauren. Thank you for joining me tonight. Um, I'm happy to have you on the show. Um, just for the listeners, I met Lauren the last week of June. So it's been like a whole month since I've met you. Um, and we met at a crisis training and just kind of went from there. And I was like, first of all, you're just a, a fabulous human. And I enjoyed talking with you like when we met and uh, cracking each other up sitting at the bar. But uh, you also just kind of have like a cool story, um, which is kind of the concept of my podcast is to just let everyday people have a voice to share their story. Um, and so, you know, you, we've talked quite a bit about, you know, just kind of your childhood, some of the things that went through there, um, up to your marriage, your divorce, your kiddos, where you're at now, the work you're doing. So I'm going to let you start, um, kind of like with your background, like you got through high school. I did. I got through high school. That was a big deal. I really hated it. So I was raised Catholic and um, I went to a Catholic K through eight school and then a Catholic all girls high school. And it was not as fun as it sounds. <laughs> um, Fair. And so I, I kind of, I kind of fought against it the whole way. And, and then I, but I, I did well and I graduated and, and now it's a long time behind me. And you, came out kind of after that right I did after oh. so after high school I came out um because this girl asked me out and I didn't realize what was happening until she brought flowers and then I was like <laughs> oh um and then after we made out I was like this is why I always want my boyfriends to be more like girls because this actually is fun and I want to do it more but then it threw me into a whole kind of like identity crisis because I've, I've really felt like I had a lot of, I did a lot of black and white thinking mm -hmm. and I really felt like, you know, how could I live with myself for 18 or 19 years and not know this huge piece of my identity? And then I was like, I kind of, I kind of had a breakdown where I wouldn't sleep because I was afraid I would wake up and be something else that I wasn't ready to deal with. Like, evangelical Christian or something. Mm -hmm. Um, but that didn't happen turned out. Um, anyway, so that was kind of a, that was a, that was a rough time for me. I would go to the grocery store and like, like I, cause I wasn't sleeping. So I would go to the grocery store, which was 24 hours at like three in the morning. And I would like pick a theme and then like fill up a cart. So like, I would be like, okay, tonight is P. And I would just put all items that start with P in the cart, like, you know, pineapple and, and pennzoil and peanuts and, you know, and then I would just leave the cart somewhere and go. Okay. Do you feel like you, do you, have you come to a place of understanding, like with being so pushed with Catholicism and with organized religions and things, do you feel like now that makes sense to you why you didn't understand that until you were 18 or 19 yes yeah and it makes sense to me why it was such a big deal for me also um but uh yeah no i didn't have i thought like gay people were like far away and weird like that's how catholics my parents had gay friends over at the house all the fuck time like i just didn't mm -hmm. know that that yeah. wasn't talked about it so mm-hmm mm -hmm. 
And and you didn't come across that at an all girl school? Or no, were you just really just oblivious like, to it? I was I was probably oblivious to whatever was happening. Um but like mostly it was just like people thought I was a dyke because I played sports and then I wasn't a dyke, but then I am a dyke, so I don't know. I think I mean, that's okay, though. Like, have you come to peace with that part yet? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Because, like, my best friend and I, uh, you know, we met a gal who's a, a friend of her younger sister, and we all were like, does she know she's a lesbian yet? They're like, <laughs> no, she, like, vehemently denies it. And we're like, okay, well, we'll just wait. Like, some people <laughs> can see it, you know? And we're like, we right. don't care. We're just wondering if she's figured it out. Right. And sure enough, you know, now she's married to a woman. They have a cute little beautiful daughter. And and the rest is history, but it's, it's kind of an interesting piece to me. Like, obviously I'm a hetero person that has not experienced that whole need to come out, but, um, but like here, here for the people that do, you know, and it, and it is interesting. And I think it's cause we like fight it, you know, it's like, it not the same by any means, but like as close as I can maybe relate to like pushing something away is realizing this religion thing ain't for me, mm -hmm. which is also a big thing in people's lives not a comparison to coming out by any means, but it's like, that's as close as I can probably get to going. Right. But you're risking, you're still, me? <laughs> you're still, and more in, you know, more 20, 40, 60 years ago, but you're still risking, especially with, you know, a religion like the Mormon faith or the Latter-day Saints, like you're risking losing your whole family, your whole support network, every, everything. You don't know what's going to happen. Are they going to turn in a lot of religions? And I, thankfully that was not my, that was never my experience. Like my family is really cool and nobody's like shoving anything down my throat. Nobody exiled me. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm still like a big <laughs> anchor in my family, still a big driving force in my family. And I'm, and I'm very thankful for that experience. But, but like my, my mom's mom was Catholic. Or somebody, one of them was Catholic, one was Baptist. And when she decided to become Mormon, like her mom, her mom basically disowned her. Her mom died on her birthday and hated her. Like it was still a bad thing. So, I mean, like, like she was like, I was going to live till tomorrow, but, but, but no, I'm just going to give you one last mm -hmm, and have a good life, ma'am. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah, but I mean, there's, there's, there's this whole concept of like, it's funny because when people talk about imposter syndrome, I interpret that in such a different way. It's not, I haven't earned this place to be here. I, I don't have a, it's not, I feel fake and I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Mine is more like, that's when I felt like an imposter was living a life for other people that were not for me. So, I mean, mm. maybe there's a dual, you know, maybe it's a double-sided coin, right. but um, by what people understand it to mean, right. I I can't relate on that, but I do feel like, I'm not able to live fully the way that I want to. Mm -hmm. And you also don't know how to put that to words, right? Like you don't know what you're looking for. You just know this isn't it. Right. It's not this. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, and then how many years later did you meet your wife? Oh, that was all at the same time. So, okay. um, so was when I was. the girl that brought you flowers? No, no. Okay. <laughs> that was the girl from the deli at the grocery store. Okay. Uh, uh, no, I had lived with Kelly my freshman year of college, and um, so I already knew her, but she decided not to come back to Auburn for her second year, and so um, so I was dating Lisa, the deli woman, and, um, and then realized, like, 
kind of, you know, like at the worst possible moment, <laughs> like in bed naked with her, that I was in love with Kelly. Mm. And I was like, I'm in love with Kelly, which is not a nice thing to say to a person who's not Kelly in bed, in bed with you. It weren't. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, but Lisa was very gracious and she was like, okay, you know, all right. If, cause she, I was, she, she knew she was my first girlfriend and she knew I was still trying to figure stuff out and, and she was actually lovely. Um, so then I called Kelly and I was like, how's about you come be gay with me? And she was like, no. And I was like, oh man. <laughs> and then I just spent the rest of the year writing letters to her, trying to convince her that she should definitely be gay with me. And it worked. Yeah. That's it. Interview's over. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Ta -da! Ta -da! It's magical story time. No, not so. Not, writing not writing so, letter not by yet. hand. It's just the way to <laughs> it's go. It's all she wrote. It's all she wrote. Yeah. And so you guys then had, if I remember, it was a 16-year marriage. Yes. And you were in Ohio. We were in Ohio. State, Ohio, Washington. Yep. What was yep. your what was your biggest takeaway from that relationship? And then kind of leading up into like you figuring out this isn't good, this isn't what I need. I mean what part of that do you want to share? Well, I think it's it. So when she did finally agree to come back to Auburn and, and be with me, um, I decided that I would never, ever get mad. Like whatever happened, I would never get mad. I would just like figure out how to not be mad. And so, so I was always trying to do things that that were like going to make her happy but like part of it is you can't do that part of it is like there's that like I don't know who made it up but the idea about love languages and my love language was not her love language so like I like clean up the house and like I like to keep things all tidy and nice and I'm like ooh, you don't have to do any work you know you don't have to wash a dish ever yeah didn't give a shit like she wanted me to hang out on the couch and watch movies or whatever so so that wasn't a good match but anyway um so I think I really kind of doomed it from the beginning because I was so scared that I would never ever find another girlfriend and I was so like infatuated and in love with her that I just didn't want her to go away to be like oh now I'm gonna leave so I was trying to but I was 19 and I hadn't had any other experiences dating and I didn't have, you know, my parents never fought in front of us. They only argued behind closed doors. And so I just thought, and my mom, if my mom said something, it happened. My mom was very consistent. So I just assumed that if somebody said something, then that's what was going to happen. And I, they meant it. And that was also a fundamentally wrong kind of a uh direction to be aimed in yeah um so don't do that so you're you're 18 19 trying to figure yourself out coming out finding this woman and then you completely still continue to ignore yourself and your own needs 
Yes. To try to accommodate yes. a relationship. That is exactly what I did. And then <laughs> what came from that? I need nothing. I need nothing. Not true. Everybody and then what that. happened? Well, a lot of things happened. Did she, um, can I back up for a second? Did she get comfortable with that? Like, was that taken advantage of? Like, hey, I have this giver who's just going to give, 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 and I'm just going to take, take, take. Was there any ounce of your relationship where she was like, hey, let me do this for you. Let me be here for you. How can I show up for you? No, I don't, I don't remember that happening. I remember anytime I had needs, like, when I first, um, when I first got diagnosed with bipolar disorder, um, and was ha doing a lot of therapy and stuff, and she was just furious all the time. She was like, why are you spending money to have a friend? Like, why are you paying a person to be your friend? Is how she described therapy. And I was like, if this is friendship, I want no part of it. <laughs> <laughs> right yeah um, um and so and and just like and I was I make friends like I I have close friends and I talk to them and she was always really jealous of my friends and she's like you're all against me I was like no 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 we're all on the same team and she could couldn't she just wanted I don't know me all to herself I guess but she right. didn't really because I was crazy. So I don't know. Well, okay. So 2010 ish, you hit a severe depression yes. during your marriage and you kind of have like an impactful moment. Do you want to, do you want to share about that story? Well, um, so, so in, in 2008, we moved to, we moved from Ohio where I had a lot of friends and I had a job that I really liked and I volunteered and I was part of a teacher inquiry group. I just had a lot going on. Um, and we moved to the West coast. Um, and those two years, 2008 to 2010 were hard because I struggled to make friends. I was underemployed. Um, and I was depressed and I was getting more and more depressed and it didn't matter. It felt like didn't matter what I said to my psychiatrist. She was just like, okay, well, we'll just keep things the same and you'll be, you know, back in a month and whatever. And um, so, so I was getting depressed to the point where I couldn't like get up and do anything. So I would like sit in the yard and stare or sit in the house and stare. And Kelly was frustrated because she's like, you're not even trying. And so we decided together that we were going to move back to Ohio, um, back where our friends were. And so I got a job and signed a contract for the job. And then right around uh, maybe like a month before I left, um, or we were supposed to leave, she told me she wasn't going to come with me, that she was going to stay in Washington with our son. And, um, and then, you know, maybe at the end of the school year, I was a high school teacher, maybe at the end of the school year, she would come out and meet us. And then she would have time to like apply for jobs over the course of the school year and see what came up. And, and then everybody would be there at the end of the year. Um, and I, 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 I like looking back now, if I had to make that decision again, with all of my brain, I would not have gone, I would have stayed, I would have figured something out. But I didn't have 
access to like my brain, the processor of my brain. And so I just decided, well, I already signed this contract, so I have to go. And I really wanted to be in Ohio, you know, so I was, I wanted to believe that she was going to come. And then in Ohio, I kind of crashed. I I got more depressed. I was working at a job that was too hard for my tiny brain. And um, I ended up, I felt like I was dead. Like I felt like I was already dead. And so I felt like I just want to be dead because I'm already dead. The person who everybody loves is gone. That person can't, I can't access that person at all. That person is just gone. And so um, I would rather be dead. And then, you know, I think it was like a, I started taking a antidepressant and I think I had just enough energy to like walk to the train tracks and like I was standing there I was standing there, the train was coming and I was feeling this, like this huge relief. Like I was just going to be done and it was going to be over. And then all of a sudden I had this thought, my son who is three and a half loves trains and wouldn't it suck for him to be the guy whose mom killed herself with a train. And so that was what I needed. That was like, that was life. Like going beyond what my will was and just like pulling me off the train tracks by with that one thought you know and so then I thought you know if being alive is pointless then being dead is probably pointless and I'll just stay alive and I walked over to my friend's house and then that was when I ended up going to the hospital later um yeah so so that was that moment there's a lot of um a lot of people, and I, and I think we've talked about this before, that are alive because they have children. Yeah, you know, that it's a it is a powerful driving force. Force. There's a lot of people who have chosen sobriety because they're children. You know, yeah. like, and here we are. We feel like we're supposed to be adults. We're supposed to protect and we're supposed to take care of these kids, which you do. We do, mm-hmm. but they have no idea how much their existence also heals and saves us. Mm-hmm. And they don't, really... need, they don't need to know that, but right. it is kind of a twisted, beautiful. Yeah. Concept, you know? Yeah. They really do. I mean, I'm not even a mom. I'm just an anti-mommy <laughs> and I would do a lot of things different in my life and make a lot of choices because I could never think about, like I used to be a smoker. And I remember having a, I had a really vivid dream one time about one of my nieces that I'm very close with. And she was at my bed watching me die of lung cancer. And it was very powerful. It did not make me stop smoking at that time, but it started to really like, I started to realize like smoking for me was never, it was, um, when I smoked, it was very much social and it was very much stress relief. So some people chose cocaine. I chose nicotine, <laughs> you know, the bottle, whatever. Everybody has their different vices. Some people become sex addicts, you name it. Mm-hmm. Mine was smoking. That is how I dealt with a lot of toxic stress. And I hid it from most people. Most people did not know that. Or most people, if they knew I smoked, I'd be like, oh, only every now and again. Cause I didn't mm-hmm. smell like a smoker, but mm-hmm. anyway, kids are very powerful life forces and, and it's not to be 
taken for granted. And I'm glad that they don't understand that they're these beautiful little life-saving humans, <laughs> uh, you know, because this, this topic is very close to my own family and myself, because my brother has, has had a lot of suicidal um, tendencies and severe depression. What, what is something, at least from your personal experience that you would offer to people that are looking in on somebody who has depression because it really is like an invisible illness and people have a, a lot of judgment around mental health because it's invisible we don't judge people for staying in bed all day when they have cancer right. or some hor you know some disease so why do we judge people that have mental health problems and and that is a loaded question that we don't necessarily have to dissect but what would you say was the most helpful for you for people to understand what you needed or what you didn't need when you were going through that. So when I got, okay. So when I got out of the hospital, I had two dogs in the house where I was staying who a friend had been taking care of. Um, and when I got out of the hospital, my friend Molly was like, you're going to live in our basement for however long. And I was like, but I have the dogs. And she was like, we'll deal with the dogs. You live in the basement. And she just kind of told me what to do and like took care of the rest. Like she, and then I would like sleep and sleep and sleep, right? I would sleep like 18 hours and she would call me like 10 times and be like, get up, get out of bed. You know, like she called, she would call me before work, get out of bed and go to work. She like, I mean, it's like, a, I'm, I'm sure it was like a, a full-time job, um, but she never, ever expressed that to me. Mm -hmm. um she also made sure that I was rarely alone like when I was sleeping I was alone but mm -hmm. um she had people come visit me uh or ask me out or ask me to come over or whatever um and she just kind of let me sit in her house and do like I did a lot of origami mm -hmm. um but I think the the beat the uh, through all of that it was her being present without like she wasn't like demanding anything and she wasn't like judging she was just around and I could cry I could not cry that connection I one time had a therapy session where I did not speak like the whole time so 50 something minutes and I didn't talk at all and my therapist sat with me the whole time. And at some point she touched my knee and she was like, I'm still here. Mm -hmm. And after that session, I trusted her so much more than I had trusted her before because she tolerated that. She withstood that big, big silence. And that's kind of how the presence part, the being there is life-saving. It's huge. You said something you said last time when we chatted and you said in retrospect, you now know that life wants to live and figures out how to live. That's really yeah. powerful. I think that's true. And I would say, I say that to people in, uh, I work at a crisis stabilization center. I say that to, to people often, like you're here because life wants to live and that's bigger than you are. You know, it's, it's like, you're not supposed, we're not supposed to want to die. That's not how biology works. Something has gone wrong. If you want to die, there is a problem. And well, like, 
when we were in that crisis training together, you know, <clears throat> there's a clinical aspect to dealing with suicide ideation and there's a human aspect. And I think it kind of beautifully ties in with like your therapist willing to sit there with you in silence and just be there with you, but say, mm -hmm. Hey, I'm here. No pressure. That wasn't followed up with. If you want to talk clearly, <laughs> if you wanted to talk, you would have been you're in counseling. Um, <laughs> so, and it, and it also takes tremendous strength to be able to sit in silence for 50 minutes with somebody, but that power of connection is huge. And when when you're doing crisis work or when I'm working with, you know, within the community mental health realm and somebody starts talking about, I don't want to be alive anymore. I don't go right into the Columbia suicide assessment. It feels too clinical. It feels not human. Mm -hmm. And while there's a time for it, that for me will come to the, at the end of that session. And mm -hmm. instead I, I ask every single person, do you want to die? Or do you want to stop feeling your pain? And they just start instantly sobbing. Like how many times <laughs> ask that question? Because that's a different, well, what's your intention? Do you right. have any plans? Right. So I can be a robot and start finding out what, what, what your plans are, or I can be a damn human that says, this is your pain speaking. Would you be willing to talk about your pain with me? Mm -hmm. Your life is valuable. I want you here. Like I've met, you know, I had this conversation with a girl this past week. First time I met her, we are having this conversation. And I said, I would be devastated if I got a call tomorrow that you chose to, to move forward with that, that would significantly impact my life. And I'm just a blip in your radar. So, mm. you, you know, you do matter to these people and your pain is so heavy and so great right now. You can't feel that. Yeah. You feel like you would be relieving everybody. My brother has said this to me. Mm -hmm. I, nobody, I'm just a burden. I need to just stop being a burden to everybody. Mm -hmm. That shit breaks my heart. Like how broken I've never, I've never been to that point where I've wanted to die with intention or, but I have had, I have been so broken that I'm like, if I don't wake up tomorrow, I don't care. Right. Maybe they're kissing cousins. I don't know. I never, I never like <laughs> wanted to like end it right. but I wouldn't have cared if it ended <laughs> right right so that's a really really broken space and I think it's really powerful for people to understand just that is the connection mm -hmm. you don't have to understand it right you can't understand sitting at a hospital bed next to a dying person suffering from some medical illness any more than you can understand somebody in a manic or depressive suicidal state. Right. Why do, why, why do you think people need to feel like they need to understand that, but nothing medical, like medical, medical, what, what do you think that's from? I think, I think because we want there to be, we don't, uh, I can't think of how to say what I want to say, but like, we want there to be something that we can hold in our hands and say, this is the thing that's wrong. And as soon as we get this taken care of, you'll be okay. But when it's like, we don't really know what works, especially well, like we do now more than we ever have in the past, but we don't know what works, especially well to get people from 
I want to kill myself to I'm feeling joy like a lot of the time. Um, and I think it also, I think it looks, I mean, we even have a term for people who, who claim they have medical issues that they don't, right? We have hypochondria, hypochondria and Munchausen's. And mm -hmm. I think people, if they can't, if there's no like medical imaging that can show mm -hmm. what's wrong, people are like, well, you're just making it up. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that is the logical reason why people disconnect from mental health. And this is my own opinion and observation is that I think a lot of people emotionally disconnect from mental health because it hits their own shit they're not dealing with. Uh-huh. <laughs> I do. I think that there's a twofold to that. Like, ooh, well, my life isn't really that great. And I can't sit with you in your pain. This is like Brene Brown's difference between empathy and sympathy. Mm -hmm. oh, sorry, it sucks that you're going through this. Right. Because for me to sit next to my brother, who may be having one of these episodes, and I'm sitting in a hospital with him, I have to be able to connect to the deepest, darkest parts of my life to be mm. present with him. And I, so I think that emotional barrier comes up with mental health as well as the logical, like, well, I can't see it. I can't touch it. I can't feel it. Guess what? When my niece was in the you know, hospital dying of cancer, I can't see it, touch it or feel it. Mm -hmm. I see you, I see what's happening to you, but I can't actually see your cancer, but you're right. Logically, you can see something on an x-ray. Right. Well, if we had brain x-rays being doled out for the mental <laughs> health clients, um, we would see something on an x-ray. Right. That's, that's just there. Yeah. Oh, it's a, it's interesting, but um, I think it takes a lot for people to, to be able to tap into that within themselves. And I think that's a big, big piece of it is we're actually all just a bunch of broken ass people running around right. and instead of looking for that connection and the similarities you have people that are like well my trauma was better than yours huh? no <laughs> there's no comparisons for trauma this is not an episode we, this is not an episode of television we want to watch um and it's really invalidating but um but i think the people with the greatest empathy in life are some people who have survived some really hor horrible traumas that have chosen to not let that change who their heart is mm -hmm. it, to a negative way. Like we are forever changed by our experiences. We can never forget them because that made us. And, and I remember when, when we were sitting in the bar that night, you, you said to me, how are you such a badass?" And I have to, and I laugh and I think about this question because I, A, I don't look at myself as a badass. B, I, say that very thing to a lot of clients and i'm talking people who have seen and lived and survived some of the most atrocious things that i sit there in disbelief listening to and i just had this conversation so i don't know what makes me the badass when i think about how insignificant my life is compared to certain things that people have lived and not as a comparison just as perspective Mm -hmm. And I look and I, and I have had this conversations several times with people. And I'm like, have you ever thought about what a badass you are? And every single one mm -hmm. of them, like, hell no, like my <laughs> life sucks. It's miserable. This, that right. I said, because you have your lenses on and this is where you look from. I said, right, right, I right. get to sit and listen to sometimes 40 people a week. And 
I am amazed that you are sitting in front of me. You've survived what you've survived. You have a kind heart. You're compassionate. You can cry. You didn't become freaking Ted Bundy 2.0. You know, like <laughs> we have choices. Right. And so to me, I'm like, your strength, your will to survive, your will to stay alive, your will to fight that urge to, to end your life is far more badass than than anything I've, I feel like I could ever say is badass. So again, you know, not to poo poo on your compliment, (laughs) but, (laughs) but, um, but just changing that narrative for people. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, and it's really impactful and, and, and it's so genuine when it comes from me, because some of these people, like they just, they have no self-esteem, they have no sense of worth, they have no sense of purpose. So they feel, and Mm -hmm. I'm like, your existence does matter. And Mm -hmm. like, holy shit, what you've survived and how awesome you are. And then they just kind of like cry. Like this one man said to me, he goes, I've never had anybody ever say that to me. And I was like, well, sit with it. Consider how badass (laughs) it is that you're here, you know, like that you're, that you're alive, that you have survived the holy fuck of traumas. Yeah. Yeah. So powerful. And like, that's, that's what needs, you know, and it's not, it's not to invalidate what they've been through or to make it like rose glasses. No, it's like cold stone truth for me. Like y'all are the badasses, not me, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, like, yeah, I'm a badass because I have survived some traumas too. Sure. I get that, you know, but it's, Mm. it's, we are all so connected in how much bullshit we've survived in our lives and so much disconnect is happening we hear all this dehumanizing language yeah and we disconnect from people because it feels safer somehow but we're more alike than we all know regardless of color religion what freaking you know continent you live on if we were willing to be vulnerable and have those conversations so you used to be a teacher i did and (laughs) But and we sit here and we're talking crisis and you're working in crisis as a peer counselor. And what, why do you prefer this work to education? Um, I really liked teaching. I taught high school and um, English and I really enjoyed working with young people a lot, but a lot of working as a teacher, there's just like saying, if you're a teacher, it's like, what do you teach? And you say, you know, like I teach English and then other people are like I teach children so you know you're dealing with the children and their families and there's a lot of trauma and and strife that goes on with young people and that was part of the job that was very hard but it was also like I felt like I'm there to witness and then you know, we can also learn English because I am present for your life. Like, mm-hmm. so, um, so I learned to listen to kids' stories really um, with my full attention so that I could hear what they were like really t- trying to tell me. And, um, and I took that skill every, I take that skill everywhere. Like I, at the bus station or you know, on the street or in the gas station or wherever, and people start talking and I ask questions because I'm like, tell me more about that, whatever you're about to say. 
Um, the teaching became really difficult um, because I was so depressed that last year I was teaching and I kind of, I think I've like attached my depression to teaching, even though the two are not really attached. And so I didn't want to go back to teaching because it's very demanding. I mean, it's, you work all day and then you go home and you work in the night and you get summers off, which is nice. But then at the halfway point, you're starting to work again. So um, it's a lot of work and there's a lot of other stuff like, like testing, like standardized testing and just administrative stuff that's like gets in the way. And I, it's like too hard to take it seriously, but you have to, like, it's your job. So, so working uh, in, so when I found out that peer counseling was a job, um, I was like, I am interested in learning more about that. So I did, and I, um, I did the training and then a job came open doing pretty much exactly what I had wanted to do, which was work in a crisis unit. Um, uh, it's not a, like a, an evaluation and treatment center or anything. It's a voluntary unit. Um, so it has a, I don't know, a more humane atmosphere, I think, than ENTs can have. Um, and I really, I love listening to people's stories and I love telling them, you know, I love helping them figure out, you know, what they want for their lives and what they want moving out as they move out of crisis, what, where, what direction do they want to go in and how to do that? Yeah. I think it, it takes a lot to work in crisis. Not everybody's cut out for that. Um, and I, and do you find that any of that, uh, love for crisis comes from the deep, your own crisis, you know, like knowing how important it was to have somebody there during that. Yes. Yeah. And I also, because I've been there, I know I can sit with it. I know I can. Yeah. And it's like, it's like, I asked my therapist, the therapist I have right now, recently, I asked her like, why did you become a therapist? And she was, she, that's exactly what she said. She's, or no, why did you become a trauma therapist? And she said, because I knew I could. Mm -hmm. And not everybody can do it. They can't, they can't. No. And I think it takes a lot of strength. And so how do you, how do you do that day in and day out? Like, do you have certain self-care? Like, how do you pour back into yourself? Do you, are you intentional with that? Or are you just like, fuck, I'm starting to lose it and I better pay attention. <laughs> I'm more, I'm more. Sometimes I'm a little, but <laughs> I'm towards the fuck I'm starting to lose it and of things. Yeah. Um, but typically my typical week is a pretty big mix of things. And so it's not too much of one kind of thing that's really overwhelming. Like one, one week we had all, like we had three different people who had all cut off part of their bodies. Yeah. And that was like, I was like, I need a day off. I can't, yeah. that, that was really upsetting, like personally to me. Mm-hmm. Um, we had another time when we had three women who um, had all been sex trafficked and it was like a 10 day period. And at the end of that, I was like, I, I got to take a break. I can't yeah. do it. So usually it's not like I, it's not something I, I plan ahead of time, like need to do self-care. I take vacations every once in a while. Um, but 
it's definitely something that when I realize I'm at the edge of my, when I realize I'm bumping up against my limit, I am able to be like, okay, I need a minute, you know, I need a day, I need two days a week, whatever. Yeah. Um, and you were saying you work like a 30 hour work week. Yeah. Yeah. That which is also nice. Yeah, for sure. Because trying to do 40 plus hours of crisis would probably max anybody out. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody at our unit actually works 40 hours. Everybody works That's between, uh, every, I'm the only one who works 30 hours, but everybody else works about 36 or 37 hours a week. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit less than 40. They work three yeah. days, 12 and a half hour shifts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't do that in my head. <laughs> That's fair. Me either. I'm not asking. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, I I think that that, you know, because working in the mental health realm, you know, they always tell us you got to self-care, self-care. And I think it's great when people actually preach that and practice it, you know, because there are mental health places that they don't, you know, and, and like, so it's great when I hear that. And, and I know that I can give, 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 give to the point of I'm going to drop dead. And, you know, even like, my residency teacher at school was like, uh, Britt, you need to make sure you work somewhere that values self-care and time off because Mm -hmm. you won't do it yourself. And I was like, I know, I know. So when I moved back to Spokane and I got on where I'm at now, I remember I was there for three months and my boss goes, um, you haven't requested any time off. And I was like, yeah, that's still a foreign concept. The dental world didn't give a shit. (laughs) (laughs) Not only did I work 120 hours every two weeks sometimes, but take a day off. Are you kidding me? It was like, if you were sick, they were like, can you work in the back room and just answer phones? (laughs) No, I'm dying. Uh, No, actually. Yeah. So, I mean, it was like, you had to dang there be close to call in sick and dental. So I I'm, I'm grateful. I work with a, a great company that really does value that and make sure I'm booking my vacations, even if it's just an extra long weekend, just because, Um, I think that's valid, but, um, what, I guess in closing, what anchors your heart, mind, and spirit on the daily? Well, I mean, my kids Mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, definitely my connections with people. I mean, my kids are the biggest, the, the most intense connection, but my connection with my friend, Andy, um, my friend Molly, my friend Ingrid, mm-hmm. they're all, those connections sustain me um, and kind of keep me tethered to the reality I want to be in. Mm-hmm. And it it has made it so that, especially with Ingrid, that I trust that if she says to me, like, you aren't right, like something is wrong. Like I can trust that she is there to help me and not, and I should listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I probably will be like, I am fine, but I, you know, in the back of my head, I know mm-hmm. this is love. She's speaking from a place of love. Yeah. Those people are mm-hmm. powerful to have in our lives. Yeah, well, I personally true. think you're pretty badass. Like I love to hear your story. <laughs> I'm so glad that I met you, honestly. And I was even more glad that you weren't offended when I told you you reminded me of Darlene. 
because it was just like you you know like you even have just this like this nice voice like I think if I'm like when you talk I'm like if I was in crisis I could listen to that voice it's like sometimes <laughs> I'm like I feel like I'm just like this foghorn sometimes <laughs> you just have this just like nice voice that's calming but I think it's I think it's brave when people are willing to share their stories you know and I think it's brave to sit and talk about this was my lowest and this is what came from it. And this is how I changed my life. And that's really the focus that I want for this podcast is for people to see that we get to control with what we do with what happens to us. Mm-hmm. And yeah, well, I, I'm excited to hear your, your podcast, especially uh, since I know one of the other guests. Since what? One of the other guests. Yeah. You might know one or two. <laughs> I'm still working on some of them. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, but I'm really excited. Um, I'm not going to lie at this point, you're my, you know, you're my third interview, official interview. And it's kind of one of these things that the universe has put this on my heart and I don't fully know. I don't know how to do the whole editing process yet. There's a lot to be learning here, but, um, but when it's time, it's time. Like when you know, you got to do something, you got to do it. And I just think, I am blessed to come across some of the most amazing people and I want to share those moments mm-hmm. with other people. And I want everyday voices. We can hear the celebrity stuff all day long. I don't really care about it, but I do <laughs> care about, I mean, it's great. They have a platform, but what about all of us that don't have a platform? Right. Because even yeah. if one person hears a story and it can help change their life or connect them to somebody that can help, mm-hmm. that's a beautiful, that's what I hope to offer is connections for people. Yeah. And a little bit of hope, a lot of hope. Cause you're a badass. Wow. Right back at you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. I absolutely appreciate and adore you. And I'm so glad that we text and get to build our own friendship as well. <laughs> yeah. I like you. Well, I like you. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I'm sure we will talk again. All right. All right. <laughs> Thanks Lauren.